You know, did anybody, anybody start smiling a little bit? Anybody laugh at all? Just a, a touch, you know, and some of you are probably going, what in the world is that all about? Joy's contagious. It's amazing. You can start, I mean, that little, that's a YouTube thing, a little thing. You can start studies show that, you know, if one person begins to start to laugh like that gets the giggles, it's really possible the rest of the people can start getting the giggles as well. And, and eventually, before you know it, the atmosphere of the place you're in has changed. Because you can influence your environment. You know that? That you have the ability to walk into a situation. It can be in a room. It can be in the school setting. It could be in your office. It can be in your own family. It can be in, in, in a church setting. You have the ability when you come into that place and you begin to have a sense of joy. Your joy is actually contagious. It spreads. And people see that joy. And you can actually, through your joy, cause someone else to smile. That causes someone else to smile someone else to smile. We're going through a series called Good Neighbor, and and as a good neighbor, one of the things we talked about last week is that our love impacts people, and part of our love is expressed through joy. And and one of the greatest things that we need to understand that as we live this life is that that it is our joy, it is how we live that is the most attractive thing to other people, that causes people to begin to ask the question, why do you believe what you believe? Joy is contagious. Our love impacts people, but our joy actually attracts people. And part of being a good neighbor, according to the word of God, is love. And we're going to see in a few moments how joy is a part of that. Joy is not only contagious, it's attractive. It's attractive because if you really think about it, who wants to hang around a Debbie Downer, right? Think about it. I mean, you laugh at it, but the reality is true that a negative person, you know, when you're in a situation, you see a negative person, one of the things you want to do is kind of step away from that person who's negative. Because not only is joy contagious, it's also attractive. It actually calls and draws people to them. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, these words. He says, I plead with you, Euodia, and I plead with you, Syntyche. Now, I, I, did, I noticed that Brandon and Julianne and, and also Arian and Rachel and Anna, did not, you didn't name one of your kids Syntyche or this other name that's going to come up. He says, I plead with you, Yodia and Syntyche. So think of that, parents, as a, as a name, Syntyche. Anyway, to agree with each other in the Lord and loyal Sizgus. That's a good guy's name right there. Help these women. And then Paul adds, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. In essence, Paul is saying, celebrate God all day, every day. Just revel in him. Allow yourself to live in such a way where you begin to experience his joy and express that joy to others. Paul encourages us to rejoice and learn, not just some of the time, not when things are going well or going our way, but he says rejoice always or all the time. And because there's no way to embolden or italicize when he's writing on these parchments, he does what a good Hebrew kind of trained person does or people would do in those days, that they actually will repeat themselves when they want to emphasize something. Sometimes when you see the word holy, 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 it's merely a way of saying not just three times holy, it's a way of saying really, really holy. If they could embolder, italicize, and underline, they would. And in, in this way, it says, I will say it again, Paul says. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Celebrate God all day, every day. Revel in him. And I will say it again because it bears repeating. Joy is contagious. Joy is attractive. And joy is a good thing. In fact, it is something that as people taste it and they experience it, they want more of it. That's exactly why drugs are addictive. 
Drugs are really often given to either suppress and to push pain down. We will do things. There's all kinds of ways where we try and move away from sadness and pain by taking a substance. And God says there's a possibility of a relationship. And when you begin to walk in that, it allows for you to experience joy and to actually move through the sadness, actually deal with it in healthy ways so that you can actually have sadness in your life but still have joy. Isn't that an interesting combination? But that's what it means to follow Jesus. Because he wants us to feel more alive and happier and better and more peace. And he wants that to be contagious and attractive. And he wants it to taste good. There's a verse in Psalm 34, these first few verses. And I love Psalm 34. I uh, memorized it in the NIV, the New International Version. The reason I memorized it in that version is because that's the only version I had at the time. But anyway... I memorized it, and I would use it often when I'd go to bed at night. There's many times in my life when I would be just filled with fear. I'd be filled with a sense of, of anxiety, and, and I would just take and I'd repeat these words over in my head. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips, and they, my, his praise was on my lips at those times, but it was one of the things I do. I love the way the message translated. It says, I bless God every chance I get. My lungs expand with praise. There's a, as I was reading on this whole idea of joy, and I was studying it, one of the things that I found very interesting is that joy is not complete until it gives expression. Isn't that interesting? Joy isn't complete until it, 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 if you really have joy, it begins to express itself in a smile. It begins to be, as he says, on our lips. I bless God every chance I get. My lungs expand with his praise. I live and breathe, God. If things aren't going well, hear this, all of you, he says, and be happy. Join me in spreading this news. Here's the exciting news. Together, let's get the word out. God met me more than halfway. He freed me from my anxious fears. Look at him. Give him your warmest smile. Never hide your feelings from him. When I was desperate, I called out, and God got me out of a tight spot. God's angels set up a circle of protection around us while we pray. Open your mouth and taste. Open your eyes and see how good God is. Blessed are you who turn to him. Or I like the way the NIV says it. Taste and see that God is good. This is a taste and see kind of life. We, we, we think so often that our testimony has to, and, and there's a part where it is in word where we share with someone, but the greatest testimony, the greatest example you're going to be is a life that is filled with joy, that a person looks at that life and, and, and sees it and it goes, I want that. It's, it's the life that is filled with this character of joy. It causes people to hunger for God and to say, what is it you've got? That, that looks good. It seems like it might tastes good. I would like to experience it. Chuck Swindoll in his uh, devotional Seasons of Life writes about the importance of being, and he calls it a winsome witness or um, an attractive, appealing, joyful witness. He says, if you ask me, I think it is often just as sacred to laugh as to pray or preach or witness. But then laughter is a witness in many ways. We've been misled by a twisted, unbalanced mind if we come to think of laughter and fun as being carnal or even questionable. This is one of Satan's sharpest darts, and from the looks and long lines on our faces, some of us have been punctured too many times. Pathetic indeed is the stern, somber Christian who has developed the look of an old basset hound through long hours of practice in restraining humor and squelching laughs. <coughs> Looking stern and severe is nothing new. 
the frowning fraternity of the sour set got started in the first century. Its charter members were a scowling band of religious stuff shirts called Pharisees. Their super serious, ritually rigid lifestyle nauseated our Lord Jesus. Those are strong words. Picture Jesus, if you think about it. You think of throughout history, all the different pictures you see of Jesus. How often, what do you see? What what normally do you see on his face? Concern, gentle, seriousness, yep. Somber, um, serious, sometimes even looks really sad. Yet, Jesus had to laugh. Jesus was, was probably one of the most playful, fun people around. He had to enjoy life. You don't attract people to you if you don't have some of those qualities in your life. In fact, I think that was a lot of what Jesus' life was like. And if you think about it, you have to think about it in this sense. You just think about the people he hung around with. He attracted people who were fun and joyful. And sometimes you kind of go, whoa, wait a second. Those aren't the kind of people you're supposed to hang with. In fact, when you read what they had to say about Jesus, they said about John the Baptist, you know, he was the kind of scowling, serious kind of guy. He came calling people to repent. He was really, he meant business. And they said he came neither eating or drinking. Life was all about this, you know, denial. And he came with this message, which was the message of John the Baptist, and they didn't accept his. But listen to what they said about Jesus. Jesus, here's a guy. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Sinners. He hung around with people. I mean, he, you get more of this picture of Jesus hanging around with people around the bar, people who seemed to, you know, they were looking for life. They were looking for what made life good and, and, and what made life valuable. He was looking for people who were hungry for God. And you get this picture of Jesus really different when you go through the word of God. You just All you have to look at is how often he went to dinner parties. Think about it. We, you have again and again pictures of Jesus being invited to dinner parties. And it really doesn't take a lot of imagination to picture these as joyful events. Just think of your own dinner parties. How many of you sit around and you look like you're, you know, you've sucked on lemons and you're, you know, you just don't, you don't, usually there are times of festivity and they're fun. My guess is when you go out for a baby dedication time after this, you're not going to, you know, it's usually fun, you laugh. And Jesus was, was at dinner parties and celebrations where there was laughter and there was cheer and people were delighting in one another's company. And as one author says it, there is a reason that one enduring image of heaven is a banquet. Isn't that interesting? What picture, a picture for our eternity is sitting around this incredible dinner party eating good food, which we all look like we enjoy, right? And then laughing and enjoying one another's company. And then you know what his teaching. You, you know, he was a good storyteller. And good storytellers usually use humor. They usually use things that help lighten the, the mood, that, that usually are playful and fun. And the reason they do that is that they're making a point. It allows for people to laugh and to kind of sit back. And when you laugh, and kind of, you don't, your defenses go down. That's one of the great reasons people should laugh and smile. There's a sense that the person who is living that way, there's a sense that there's... Now, you can use laughter as a defense, but when you're actually just using it and it's just coming to you and naturally, your defenses go down. So when a good storyteller is telling a story, one of the reasons as a person is laughing, then they come in and they go, and this. And you go, oh, yeah. 
Usually they get you laughing about yourself. And Jesus did that really well. His comments are playful. They're often packed with fun. If you understand the history and you understand some of the, the, the contemporary stuff that was going on in his day and you read those stories in light of that, what amazes me at times, there were times when he would be teaching and you had, this, you had this group over here, these Pharisees, and they were kind of over there and they were sour and they were upset and they were serious and they were looking at Jesus and they are going, yeah, he's just a, he just hangs around with all these fun people and these people that are, you know, they're drinking, they're gluttons and they're, you know, they, you could get that in your mind. To even be called, that's something. That, that, usually you call something that potentially has some power to stick. And they're over there all upset. And, and Jesus is teaching. And, and he'll say things at times that I think people will go, I can't believe he just said that. And people would be laughing and kind of snickering. And Jesus was fun. Jesus had joy. Can you imagine Jesus doing this? I just look at this. Hey, Peter, come follow me, buddy. Hey, John. We don't get that picture of him, right? But honestly, I think he had to have that kind of quality about him. He had this sense of joy and this fun. Everything you read in Scripture shows he was full of joy. He was attractive. He was winsome. He was playful. And it was contagious. It caused people to taste and see that it was good, and they wanted it. It's the best neighbor you could be, full of joy. I love what Chuck Swindoll says. He absolutely write, he writes this about this winsomeness. He says, that tasteful, appealing, magnetic quality, that ability to cause joy and genuine pleasure in the thick of it all. When a teacher has it, students line up for the course. When a dentist or physician has it, their practice is full. When a salesman has it, he gets writer's cramp filling out orders. When an usher has it, he's considered friendly. When a coach has it, the team shows it. When a restaurant owner has it, the public knows it. When parents have it, kids grow it. The winsome joy was contagious and attracted people. It's the same winsome joy that still attracts people today. So we're in this series, Good Neighbor. We're talking about what does it look like to be a good neighbor. And last week we talked about the fact that love has an impact. And we looked at the story of the Good Samaritan. This week we're going to look at joy. And we're going to look at it specifically in a moment as we get into Galatians chapter 5. But as I was going through this, it made me ask this question at times, and maybe it may, you may be asking it too. Why do church services often seem so devoid of humor? Why are religious people quite commonly characterized as gloomy? Is joy growing in your life? Does joy mark your family? And how do you grow in joy? If if Paul says rejoice in the Lord, and I'm going to stress it and say it again, he says rejoice. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, and they were fighting with one another. They were having um, uh, this, this turmoil in the church, and, and it was really, he was, the whole book of Galatians is about the grace of God that expresses itself in love through the Holy Spirit. That's kind of, I just told you the book, you don't need to read it. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, um, Opposed to some people who were saying that it's not what God does in your heart and how he works in your life as you begin to understand that you can't save yourself, you can't forgive your own sins, only God can. Now, you, when God forgives your sins, then you need to forgive your sins. But you're not the one who makes yourself right with God in any way. But he, through his relationship, says, I love you, I give you this gift of grace, I, I want to be involved in your life, I want you to know joy, I want you to know peace, I want you to grow in these things. And he says, when those kind of things happen, begins the Spirit of God, we invite the Spirit of God comes 
comes into our heart when we open our life and say, Jesus, I need you. You know that song we sang? I need you, oh, Lord, I need you. If you really mean that, he hears that prayer. And then it means, God, I recognize I've, I've offended you. I've hurt people. I've recognized my sin needs judgment. I recognize that according to your word, you've given me grace. This is the book of Galatians. And I recognize that when you do that, now I live with a whole nother motive, a whole nother attitude. It's not that I'm trying to do good things. It's not that I'm trying to be joyful. It's not that I'm trying to live in peace. It's not that I'm trying to be patient and kind and good and all these things in order to get you to pat me on the back in order to get myself into heaven. I'm doing this because of the love I have for you for the love that you've given me. Now, there's a whole group that was coming in and it was like the, the Pharisees, the ones who were scowling and serious and, and rigid in their life and all these other things and they're coming in saying, no, no, what you need is the law. You need the law externally to guide you and if you don't have the law, now the law is a good thing, it's not a bad thing, but we don't live out of the law. We live out of the spirit and the grace and the goodness and the love of God and he says this law, they came in and I call the Pharisees religious cops. Churches are notorious at doing this. They move out of grace and they move into the law and they start looking at everybody to make sure they're following the rules just right. And, and, and Paul is going, guys, that's not how you're to live. I want you to live out of my love, the love that the Father through Jesus has for you. And so he says in chapter 5, verse 14, following on this holy good neighbor thing, and we looked at it last week as love, listen to what he says. The entire law is summed up in a single command. You don't need a bunch of laws. You only need one law that guides your life. It's to love people. I mean, you don't need speed limit signs that say don't go 120. If in your heart you are guided by a law that says, I don't want to go any faster than what is really appropriate so that I don't hurt anybody. You get that? We put up laws for the people who don't have this guiding principle that comes through Jesus in their heart, in the spirit of God. And so he goes, he says in Galatians, the entire law is summed up as a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, in the Greek it's this idea of dogs that are fighting. You ever seen dog fights? You see what happens, you know, good dogs run together as a pack and they're running all over the place having a great time. Sometimes you have dogs that get in dog fights and they start to bite and they devour each other and that's the picture. He says, you guys were running together for a while and then all of a sudden you lost it and started going to law so you started judging each other and all this stuff. He says, you're not living out of the gratefulness that comes from the gospel that forgives you and, and, and impels you out of love to live and to love others. He says, you're starting to bite and fight and it just destroys community. It destroys life. And if you live that way here in community, you're probably going to live that way in the community around the world. And you're going to be living in such a judgmental way. You'll be biting and devouring people. And there is no way that anyone wants to know Jesus with that kind of attitude. So if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out. You'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, here's the here's this statement. I say live by the Spirit. And do not gratify the desires of your flesh, that which comes natural. Because the acts of the flesh are obvious. The things that come out of us, he says, are obvious. And he lists a whole bunch of things. But it's hatred and dissension and, 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 and it's you, whatever you want to do. Boy, that, you know, it, it's, that person looks pretty, so you lost. Or, or, or that, you know, that guy has a better car, so you greed. Any of the, they're obvious. They come out just naturally, is what he says. So I say, live by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of your flesh. The acts of the flesh are obvious. The fruit of the Spirit, and I, this is the Meyer paraphrase, but it's, not, it's, in, it's in good line with regard to commentaries. The, spirit of the, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Right? Love your neighbor. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and guess how it expresses itself? 
So this is a real good question. You ask yourself, am I a loving person? It expresses itself in joy. So if you really are a loving person, you're living by this law, it expresses itself in joy, in peace, in patience, in kindness, in goodness, in faithfulness, in gentleness, and in self-control. So joy, according to this, is the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says joy is a fruit. And in one aspect of love that God is growing and maturing in our hearts is this fruit of joy. Now, the word in the Greek, fruit, is the word karpos, which basically uh, means this. In fact, you will hear Jesus use this. He says, you will know them by their fruit. Here's, here's how you can tell whether a person is a certain, you know, is following God or not following God. This is, this is kind of one that hurts at times. He goes, you can tell a person by their fruit because by their fruit, they are developing joy and peace and kindness. If you say you're a follower of Jesus, then if that's true, and you are a tree that's producing fruit, it would seem that the seed of the fruit begins to grow. To some point, it begins to ripen, correct? Now, it takes time, so I want to share with you. It doesn't happen overnight, but it happens as you live by the Spirit. So it should be that in five years, you should probably be a little more joyful than you were five years ago, right? Okay, don't answer that. Um, you know, here's a good thing. Turn to the person you came with and ask them if, no. That, that'll be a fight the whole way home. Anyway. Strong defines it this way, that which originates or comes from something, that's a fruit. It's an effect, it's a result. It's a fruit, it, it begins to grow. And, and the word of God tells us it's a, a fruit of the spirit of joy. And, and the word joy in, this, in the Greek here is the word kara, which is the word we get charisma. You know, a person has a lot of charisma, they seem to kind of be attractive in, in, in their winsomeness. That's, that's, so joy is underneath all that. And, and from that, the idea in, in the Greek, the definition by strong is this, um, cheerfulness, gladness, and calm delight. And its range of meaning goes from shouting with exuberance, that's joy, all the way, and I love this, uh, this idea, all the way to a steady and calm confidence that allows you to smile throughout the day no matter what might be going on. Isn't that kind of cool? That's what begins to develop in our life. Now, the Bible says it's a fruit of the Spirit. It ripens over time. Listen to that again. But the fruit of the Spirit. This would be a great verse that I, through this series, as, as others kind of bring this to you, that you begin to memorize. This, I just encourage you, you're going to have this for the next six or so weeks. So memorize this verse. It's a great verse to know. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, which is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, did you note what Paul does not mention here? He does not say the fruit of the Spirit is discouragement or or negative attitude or or becoming a better complainer. Uh, It it doesn't say anything about having somber seriousness. Not not that you don't have those kind of things at times in your life, but all these negative things take no work at all. They come easily. They come, as they say, the flesh means it comes naturally. That's when you see the sinful nature in your NIV. The new ones, I'm glad, translated flesh because flesh is that which comes easily. So joy is a fruit that originates or comes from something, is an effect or result of the Spirit. It's what God is generating in our hearts because of his love for us. It's not an effect of something that's happening outside of us. You know, you've heard this probably before. Happiness is based on what's happening. It's external. 
joy isn't. Joy, and, and we'll use those interchangeably. So if I use the word happiness, I'm not talking about what's happening out here, but the word kara, the word joy means this kind of deep, centered peace that comes from the fact that you know that God loves you, that he saved you, that he will deliver you, that he is there with you, that he is walking with you. No matter what is going on, you can know that God loves you. And because you know God loves you, you can begin to walk with a sense of a smile that God has his hand on my shoulder. All right? So, that's what joy is. So the key to growing in joy is living in the Spirit. Now, again, I'm going to pull you back to Galatians. Listen to what it says in Galatians 5, 16, and then verse 19. He says, so I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, the things that come naturally to you, the ability to hate, to grumble, to complain, um, to get all scared, going, oh, no, this is going to happen, God. Dude, I can't believe The ability to know that God is with you, even if a bad thing happens, he can continue you through it. He can, he can take you through it. One of the Psalms I love is, is this idea that, that, um, that the person who is righteous, who walks with God, has no fear even in times of trouble. How do you do that when you know that God's with you? And so you read this, and he says, live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Then the message, I like the way the message puts this, when we live in God's way, he brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a, a, sense of compassion in the heart and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We treat people with honor and respect. We see them really differently. And we find ourselves involved in loyal commitments. You can't just go, oh, I'm with you for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I did. I said at the altar, I'm going to be with you forever. But yeah, who, you know, we all know that we can't. The Spirit of God gives you the ability to be involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal, and here's the idea of self-control, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. The Spirit of God comes into us and he empowers us when we say yes to him to do the things we never thought we could do. You see, the whole idea of a fruit and this whole idea of joy, this whole idea of love with all these things that we're talking about is about the development of our character as we walk with God. And as our character over time develops, it ripens in such a way that people look at it and go, that's that's contagiously attractive and I want some. I want that life. And like a fruit that grows as you trust Jesus and live by the Spirit, knowing that God loves you and take care of you, you know it in any and every situation. Now, I was, uh, this, this last week, my sister was here. We were um, in the process of moving my dad up to assisted living from Illinois to Minnesota, and she shared with me a, a, a video of a friend of hers who she was Facebooked by. So I said, Karen, I'd love it if I could just show that. Would you ask permission? She said, oh, sure. So as this video begins, it's one of those things where you go, God is so good because from the mouths of babes, sometimes he speaks to us, right? And, and it starts out, and she's talking about Goliath. So, Goliath and David. Goliath doesn't have God on his side, and David does, because God always helps little people do big things. Just like God always helps me to stop sucking my thumb to say, please, God, Make me not set my thumb like that. It really can do it. You really can. It's easy to do. Uh-huh. Now, I love that, moms. Isn't that great? 
I want that little one in my backseat all the time. She had just come in, set her in her, and she was in a huff. She was all upset. Things weren't going well. She had said that, and, and, and I think she had said something like, oh, it's just, it's such, it's so big, you wouldn't understand it, something like that. And that's when she went into Goliath and have God on her side. But David did. And he loves to come to little people like you and me, who in the midst of a situation where we go, it's just too big for you to understand. But God loves you. And because he loves you, the possibility to choose joy is available in your life. And that's your responsibility. It is our responsibility to say yes to the Spirit of God. And so if I was, you know, I, I have to say, this was one of these messages that came together rather difficultly. And, and on the way to church today, it kind of a few of the things came to my mind, and I just didn't have time to put it together like this, so I'll do it for you now. Um, if I was to talk to you about the way to develop joy, there's four D's in, in, in what I understand developing joy. One is you have to have a desire, and then you have to decide, and then you need to determine to do it which means you make the plan. And then the word discipline I talk about is just the word practice. You know, like, if anybody play the piano? Ever heard of the, you know, practice makes what? The idea is we're not trying to be perfect in the sense of perfection, but it practice perfects your character. And so discipline is just the ability to do it again and again and again. I'll do it again today. I'll do it again this next moment. I'll do it again. I'll choose joy. I desire joy. I'll decide that today I want joy. Then I'll determine a plan that will be, and then I will do it again and again. And part of discipline that makes habits stick is to do it again with someone else. That make sense? And so the first thing I want to just talk to you, when you look at this, there's, there's Paul's kind of saying, I want you to live by the Spirit. And you just have to have a desire. Do you want to do that? Do you want joy? And, and I shared in the first service, and I'll kind of do true confessions, and everyone comes up, oh, you're not that bad, but, you know, okay, I'll just tell you. It, joy for me is a struggle. I, I have to tell you, I have to work at it. What I find is really interesting is, is um, I either, it's either part of it's my temperament, part of it's my training, my family of origin, things that I learned and how I learned to respond to things. And then part of it is I just sometimes refuse to choose to trust. Anybody feel that and know that? And so what happens in those situations is I'm controlled by things outside of me, not by the Holy Spirit. So then I find myself on this roller coaster, and I was on this roller coaster for such a long time that eventually, and part of it was, honestly, living with my wife, who is just kind of like a joy bomb. I mean, she just is, she lives with a sense of, you know, on, this, on the strength finder, she measures positivity. Which, if you've been, I mean, I can pick out positivity people. I'm just not there. And so living with her, I go, man, I, I'd like more of that. I, I, don't, I would like not to be like this. And so at a certain point in my heart, I said, I desire this. And so i got to ask you this. Do you want to be joyful? I mean, really, seriously, do you want to be joyful? 
And if you really want to be joyful, it has to move then from just desire to a place where you decide and say, I will be joyful. I will choose. Today I'm going to decide. This morning I'm going to decide to say yes to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to decide to say no to those evil desires. And he uses the word evil because what evil means here is that it brings about a destruction, not only of your own life and your own, your own joy, but it destroys other relationships. And it, and it has an impact on God's creation. It has an impact in relationship to God. It's just not a good thing when these desires take over but we've been forgiven for that the sin has been forgiven by Jesus and he now has said if you want to know me walk with me and as you open your heart to him he begins to give you the desire even to do this so he even helps you there you just have to say yes and then from desire it, it, it moves to this this key question um, where you say in desire I, I want to know you Jesus, and I want to walk with you, Jesus, and I want to grow in joy more than I want to follow me and my own desires that lead me down this up and down path. And then in Galatians 5, if you look at verse 16, he says, contrary to your, na- your natural tendencies, I say live by the Spirit, catch this, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify those natural fleshly desires. When you decide to say, yes, God, I'm going to be a joyful person, you now start moving your desires into a place where they have the possibility for God to empower you to become joyful and to grow in joy. Now, I have to share with you, um, research will tell you this. There's a great book called The Happiness Hypothesis um, by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. He's not a Christian guy. He's an atheist. I've mentioned about him before. And he has this study, scientific studies that show this that every person has a set point happiness. Everybody. So you kind of go, well, I could work with people. They don't you know, go to church. They don't, and they're happier than me. You, you, ever, you got that kind of thing? Well, here's, the, here's what science tells us. And, and, I, and this guy is an atheist, but very bright guy, I think, very honest, seeking to really ask questions. Even, even can, um, he has another book called The Righteous Mind, which is deep but really good. Anyway, uh, the um, thing I wanted to mention here is like in your house, you have a thermostat, right? And if you set it at 65 degrees, what should it do? Keeps everything about 65. It's supposed to. Science tells us that most people have a certain you know, set point of happiness. So my wife, I always say, is about 80 degrees, and I'm about 55. Okay? But what they tell you is this. You're not limited by your set point, whether it be your temperament and then some of it runs into your your training. You're not limited by it. There is opportunity because of the way we're made for there to be a, a possibility to grow. So do you desire to grow? Do you desire to say, God, I want you to make me as joyful as I can be. I want this fruit to show up in my life. So today I'm asking you to decide on a desire and say, yes, God, I want this. And then there's this question. It says here uh, uh, in Galatians 5, 22 through 25, it goes through the fruits of the Spirit. And, and then in the Living Bible, I'll read it this way in verse 24. So if we get to verse 24, it says, Those who belong to Christ have nailed their natural evil desires to his cross and crucified them there. The day that you said, Jesus, I want to follow you, I want all these desires nailed to the cross. Now, the determination is to say, God, I'm going to nail them to the cross Every time they come up. We're saved once by that act of faith. But our faith is lived daily. We determine daily 
to do this. And he says, if we are living now by the Holy Spirit's power, which is saying yes, which allows the Spirit of God to move in us to begin to develop this character, let us follow the Holy Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Here's where I like the NIV better. It says, since we live by the Spirit of God, let us keep in step. There is this sense that as you walk through this life, you desire, you decide, I'm going to do this. Now you determine a plan, and part of determining a plan is the ability to keep in step with the Spirit. Someone came up to me afterwards, and they did a lot of study on this passage, and that they said this. They said keeping in step, but they always come to mind in what they did in their studying this. It's like dancing. You're kind of in this dance of the Spirit of God. There's this sense that as you're dancing, there's a sense of joy, there's a sense of movement, and you're learning how to move with him, and none of us are good at it, we're going to fail, but obviously learning to dance, when you first start out, you don't do real well, but in time, if you keep in step with the Spirit of God, this fruit will ripen in your life, and so here's my question. Are you willing to determine to do this, and to determine to do this, you need to make a plan, because the attack that comes against you is in your thoughts, You have to think differently to be able to say no to those desires in order to allow the desires of God to flow into your life. You need to decide, I will do this now every day, and then you need to determine to develop what I call a joy action plan. Anybody know what a a plan like that would be? Good, I'll tell you one. Um, (laughs) Now, I just say that in a jest because the reality is you have to make your own. I can just share with you what has been part of my struggle is coming to a place where I go, how do I every day, and that's why I always talk about people, get your mind on the Lord early in the morning because it sets the rest of your day. How do I every day begin to determine in a plan things that I'll do that will begin to say yes to joy in my life? And so for me, here's what I've shared this before, but I'm just going to go through these rather quickly. Take time to be grateful. You have to take time to be grateful. It's, it, it's really interesting. You go through the word of God, you'll find, every time you go through the word of God, you'll find when you see the word gratefulness or thanksgiving, almost always coupled with it is joy. They are identical twins. If you begin to give thanks, you will actually begin to experience joy. If you genuinely begin to say thanks, because what happens? Well, here's what you have to do to experience joy. You have to get your mind off yourself. Right? Me, myself, and my problems. You have to get yourself on God. And in doing thanksgiving, you begin to look around and you say, God, look at all these incredible gifts. And as you begin to start looking at the gifts, you can actually say, and God, look, at they come from you because you are faithful and kind and loving and good. And then you begin to start seeing God. And it lifts God up like the little girl on that little screen that says, Goliath was without God, but you're with God. I encourage you. I, I'll sometimes write three. I'll write ten. I'll write twenty. Give thanks. Take time to give thanks. Another thing is this: is to memorize God's word. I, I, you know, it sounds kind of archaic. I want to tell you, it's not. It's something every believer should do. Memorizing God's word. One of the things that was so helpful for me throughout my life is I would take quiet times. Is at times when I'm reading God's word, there's places I it, the word of God gets in you. You don't even have to sit down. And go. I'm going to memorize this. It gets in you and it controls you. So I'm, my daughter is a, you know, going to go to a PA school, and that was a struggle to get into PA school. We were praying about that. She gets into PA school, and I don't know if you've ever been to a physician assistant or any kind of medical program. I believe in the first quarter they try and flunk you out because they don't want you to be there unless you're supposed to be there, right? 
And I remember I'd write her, and I'd, I was going through Ezra at the time. And, and this is what Ezra says. I love this in chapter 6 through 9. For the hand of the Lord was on him. For the good hand of the Lord was on him. Because the hand of the Lord was, my God, was on me, I took courage. The good hand of the Lord was on us. The good hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. And I remember I was reading that. I remember at times going through my own stress, and I remember feeling... I would just think back of standing there as a little kid with my dad's hands on his shoulder and I felt this, just this presence and this power and it would just regulate and bring about a sense of peace and I just remember standing there and I remember thinking that and I would start telling my daughter, in fact I would pray with her at times, I'd put my hands on her shoulder like that and I'd just say the good hand of the Lord is on you and I would tell her that and, and it probably did more good for me than her but I think it did good for her. And, and there's just all kinds of verses. Isaiah 26, 3. Um, God will keep you in perfect peace. He whose what? Mind is stayed on him because he trusts in him. Psalm 91, Psalm 23, 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast your cares on the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. One of the ways to do that is you've got to get in your mind the truth that allows for you to take the desire that you've decided you wanted to do because now you've determined through some practices to say, I'm going to open up my spirit and follow the spirit of God and learn to dance in joy. Another is sing a lot. Colossians says this, as you meet with one another, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart. Listen to good music. Get your mind off yourself and your problem. Smile more often. That's a really good, you know, I love smiles because smiles are the kind of hugs you can give without actually touching somebody. A lot of times, we're not in a real, you know, don't touch me culture. But guess what? You can smile and they can't stop you. And you actually cause them to smile. And the last I want to share with you is do good. One of the great ways to get your mind off someone is to do, just, just choose to do good. Uh, this week I was kind of in a funk. I was, you know, since I'm preparing for this and this, that I was, and this came to me in this time. I, I was sitting there in my office and going through some stuff, gone through the thanks thing, and then I had this thought, you know what, the dishwasher is full of dishes. I thought, I'm just going to do good because, you know, Grace would probably love that. And then I had a, someone afterwards come up with, you don't do it for your wife, you do it because it's a good thing. I said, okay, enough. <laughs> but I did do it for her. <laughs> Because I knew it would make her feel joy, and it got my mind off myself. And, and I think of things we do here. Um, Hammers of Hope, this a uh, few weeks ago, a group of people we have who go and they help, they help single moms or widows and widowers, or they just help people who don't have the financial means to do it. They come and they help them out. And, and they went to Mobile Hope last week, the, the home where there's a mobile park. And one of the first homes that you come into looked like this, up in that corner. And a group of people did good. And you can, I can tell you, they're doing good, brought smiles to their own faces, but also all kinds of joy. Because that last one is you enter that park, that's not what you see. Because some people walked in and said, I'm just going to do good. And it only changes their life, but it changes others. So I just want you to be thinking about it. You know, I'm going to do this last thing, okay, Joel? I, I, I'm running over time, and you can do this song. And I'm going to have you stand, Okay. I think one of the biggest, biggest difficulties of joy is that we put it off for another time, right? And there's a, there's a mom who wrote this little article that's in its title, Until. So I want you to say this with me. If you decide you really want to be a joyful person, say, I'm not going to put off my joy to some other time. Okay, listen to this again. I'm not going to put off my joy to some other time. So if you really mean it, say it with me. I'm not going to put off my joy to some other time. 
We convince ourselves that life will be better after we get married, have a baby, and then another baby, and then we're frustrated that the kids aren't old enough and that we'll be more content when they are. And after they're that, we're frustrated that we have teenagers to deal with and certainly we'll be happy when they're out of that stage. And we tell ourselves that our lives will be complete when our spouse gets his act together, which is probably true. Anyway, um, get a nicer car, able to go on a nice vacation, and then finally, when we retire, we'll be happy. The truth is, there's no better time to be happy than right now. If not now, when? Your life will always be filled with challenges. It's best to admit this to yourself and decide to be happy anyway. Alfred Sousa says this. He said a long time, he said it was for a long time, it had seemed to me that life was about to begin, real life, but there was always some obstacle in the way. Real life was just over the edge. Something to be gotten through first, unfinished business, time still to be served, a debt to be paid, and then life will begin. At last it dawned on me that these obstacles were my life. This perspective has helped me to see that there is no way to happiness, but happiness is the way after all. So treasure every moment you have because you have shared it with someone special enough to spend your time. And remember that time waits for no one. So stop waiting till you finish school. Go back to school. Get your kids out of school. Lose 10 pounds. Gain 10 pounds. Get married. Have kids. Kids leave home. Start to work. Find your fulfilling career or finally retire. Quit waiting until Friday night or Sunday morning, until you get a new car, a new home, until your home is paid off, until the summer or the fall or the winter or you're off welfare or your first or the 15th of the month comes. Decide right now that there is no better time to be happy than right now. Because we serve a now God, not a tomorrow God, not a yesterday God. He said, I am. Somebody got it. He said, I am, not I was or will be, but I am. And I just closed this uh, yesterday. Got a call and I found out that um, one of our ambassadors, and we have ambassadors who meet the first hour, and there's some 30 of them who are over 80 years of age. In fact, almost eight, over 85. And I got a call that one of them, who I just love, her name is Grace, and she was um, failing and I was told that she has liver cancer and I told that she looked kind of yellow and, and that if I had just come and pray with her so yesterday afternoon I kind of went over there and I sat down with her f for just a few minutes I thought and it was a half hour it was just so incredible and she was very yellow and her eyes were yellow and it just she knew she was going to be with the Lord and she was ready to be with the Lord and I just it was one of those things I didn't want to leave her presence she was so full of joy I mean, she was so full of joy and she was so joyful and happy for what she had had and all that God had blessed her with. And she's sitting with hospice. She's in a bed. She's looking out her window in her apartment. And I'm sitting next to her and she's so full of joy. And, and we just talked about going to be with Jesus. And she was so full of joy and it was so attractive and, and so contagious. And it seems so good. I guess I want to get in bed and say, go, I want to go with her. Your God is not a God that was or will be. He's a God right now. So I encourage you today to decide to experience joy for the sake of others. Father, we just pray and say this. Lead us, guide us, you promised to. Ripen this fruit within our body, we pray in Christ's name.